new series where we think about our mission as a church, the direction we're heading in this year, that sort of stuff. Uh, but today uh, we get the privilege of hearing Jesus tell a story to us. Uh, these summer series, sometimes it can be quite easy to think of them as just, you know, those, those stop gaps, the filler between Christmas and whatever we start in term one. But every single word that God breathes to us in scripture is valuable, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So it's a privilege, isn't it, to listen to God speak to us today. Let's pray and let's ask for his help uh, and then we'll have a think about this passage. Our great God, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you that as we read it today, we hear you speaking to us. Lord, please give us ears to hear and to understand this parable. Help us to be those who respond to what Jesus says with faith and obedience for Jesus' glory, we ask in his name. Amen. Uh, I wonder, do you have uh, a favorite wedding story? A favorite wedding story. You know those kind of stories that come out at dinner parties when the conversation inevitably turns to, you know, marriages and how you met and all those sorts of things? Your favorite wedding story that was memorable, you know, either for good reasons or perhaps for bad reasons. I was having dinner with some people last night from church. One of them was Matt Price, one of the elders. He told me a story about a, a wedding that he went to, which was very memorable. Uh, he arrived at this wedding, and it happened to be a medieval-themed wedding, which I'd never heard of before. didn't know that was a thing, but it turns out that the groom and the bride and the bridesmaids and all the rest were geared up in traditional centuries-old velvet gowns and all that kind of stuff you'd expect to see in Shakespeare. Uh, the band, you know, playing harps and lutes and all that kind of stuff. At the reception, they drank from goblets, ate meat off the bone. They even had two men uh, recreate medieval fighting, sword fighting in full suits of armour. That's the thing. How's that for a wedding? Pretty memorable, right? Uh, my two personal favourite wedding stories that I like to share, uh, we were at a wedding once for one of, or two of our friends, and as the, the bride started to walk in and all eyes were fixed down this end of the church, we heard music coming from the other end, and it was just a soul violin. So we turned to look, and lo and behold, the, the groom standing at the other end of the church had pulled out a violin and was serenading his bride as she walked down the aisle. Very romantic, very impressive. Normally as a groom, you're you know, shaking and nervous. I don't know how he managed to do it. Uh, and I tell you, if he wasn't marrying that girl today, I think he could have had his pick of any woman in the church at that point, any single woman. Very impressive stuff. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, I know of weddings that were memorable for all the wrong reasons. Uh, some friends of ours were at a wedding uh, where the bride was on the dance floor boogieing down the reception, and after kind of a hip check from one of her bridesmaids, she fell over, broke her leg on the dance floor at her own wedding. Pretty tragic. Do you have a good wedding story? Uh, we're going to hear Jesus tell us a very strange and a very memorable wedding story this morning. Uh, this wedding story is so weird, it feels a bit like a mafia wedding or something. It feels like a, you could be watching a scene from The Godfather as you read this wedding. Because look at how it starts. The king calls this wedding and uh, his servants get killed during the canapes. A bit strange. So the king gets up, says to the chef, well, just keep everything warm with you. I'm just going to pop off and exact some revenge. And so off the king goes and he destroys a city. And he comes back and sits down for his starter. And you can imagine it would have been a pretty awkward silence. Everybody's looking at the, the dust on the, the king's jacket. Strapping it. Nobody says anything, of course, because he's the king. You don't want to upset somebody who's just destroyed a city. And so they're all sitting down enjoying dinner, but then the king notices somebody who's not dressed properly, doesn't have his wedding suit on, maybe he's in his birthday suit, and so the king decides to get him tied and bound and thrown out of the wedding. Very strange. And Jesus says at the end of all this, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
you read the story and you go, Ooh, really? Kingdom of heaven? Like this? This wedding story that we are going to look at today, it is an explanation of what the kingdom of heaven is like. Uh, and far from just telling us this story to amuse us, to entertain us as an anecdote at a dinner party or something, Jesus wants us to learn some deep lessons from this wedding story today, from this parable. You see, in this section of Matthew's gospel that we sort of arrive at out of the blue here, uh, this section from Matthew 21 all the way through to Matthew 23, Jesus has been having this sort of season of heightened conflict with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, that sort of thing. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 21. And you know that famous scene, what he does as soon as he arrives at Jerusalem, goes to the temple, overturns the table, throws out the moneylenders, clears the temple of all that corruption. And then he begins to teach. And he teaches against the Pharisees. He exposes them for the frauds that they are. And so you see, just before we pick up our passage today, let's read those couple of verses at the end of chapter 21, immediately before uh, our passage. Chapter 21, verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. And so at this point, the religious leaders, you see, they're out to kill Jesus. That's why Jesus starts to tell this particular story. And there's three things that we're going to see in this story today. Three really simple things. Firstly, in verses one to four, we're going to see the gracious invitation to a great banquet by the king. And then verses five to 10, we're going to see that some guests refuse that invitation. Verses 11 to 14, some guests ignore the dress code. That's where we're going. So firstly, God graciously invites us to his great feast. We'll pick it up from verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. This is the scene. It's a, a royal wedding, right? It's an extravagant affair, isn't it? When a king's son gets married... You know, if you're trying to picture the scene, you probably don't have to work too hard because there was a, a royal wedding in the not too distant past back in 2011 when Prince William married uh, Kate Middleton. Uh, or maybe if you can't picture that scene, maybe you're one of those people who's eagerly anticipating the marriage of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle in May later this year, the second uh, royal prince getting married. And you've been scouring the Internet for details of the, the royal wedding as they begin to leak out. At such a royal wedding as one of these, the king or the queen, they pull out all the stops, don't they? It's really no holds barred. You have the, the most beautiful decorations, the most exquisite outfits. And of course, if you saw Prince, Harry, uh, Prince William and Kate's uh, wedding, you'd notice that these weddings often have the most ridiculous hats. That was uh, Princess Beatrice and Eugenie, I think. Uh, at these weddings as well, they have, of course, the finest food imaginable, the finest food you can find on planet Earth. Uh, at William and Kate's wedding, uh, there were some 1,900 people who were at Westminster Abbey for the, reception, for the ceremony, and then that 1,900 people was whittled down to just 300 select family and friends who joined them for their dinner reception. Now, what a privilege it would have been to be invited to that dinner reception. Now, at this uh, reception, William and Kate opted for an all-canapé dinner, which personally I reckon is a great move. Canapés are always the best thing about anybody's wedding. I don't care what anyone else says. And for them, there was a team of 21 chefs who cooked somewhere in the, re in the region of 10,000 canapés for the reception. Now, you do the math, 10,000 canapés, 300 people. That's a pretty good serving of canapés per person, if you ask me. 
I want to read you a little bit of the menu, some of the delicacies that were passed around at the reception, and just to get your mouth watering a little bit. Uh, they served at William and Kate's wedding pressed duck terrine with fruit chutney, Scottish smoked salmon, quail eggs with celery salt, Cornish crab salad on lemon bellini. I don't quite know what a bellini is, but I'm sure it's delicious and expensive. Uh, smoked haddock fish cake with pea guacamole, Scottish langoustines with lemon mayonnaise, pressed confit of pork belly with crayfish and crackling. My personal favourite, miniature Yorkshire pudding with roast fillet of beef and horseradish mousse. Oh, are you feeling hungry yet? Should have eaten some more breakfast, I think. And that is not to mention the countless desserts that they served. The eight-tiered wedding cake with some 900 sugar paste flowers on it, accompanied, of course, as you'd expect, with a selection of wines from the Buckingham Palace wine cellars. And you know that those are going to be as good as wines can be. What a privilege it would have been to be invited to a banquet like that. Can you imagine there being there, enjoying the hospitality of Queen Elizabeth? Well, friends, you know that the Bible repeatedly describes the kingdom of God as a great banquet. Joel already read for us that passage from Isaiah 25, that famous passage that describes God's kingdom as a place where God will provide a banquet of rich food. There will be uh, aged wines. At this banquet, God is going to swallow up death. It's a magnificent picture. And of course, you're probably familiar towards the end of the Bible when in the book of Revelation. By the time you get to Revelation chapter 19, you read about the wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding feast of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain in place of sinners. And you read that the first thing that we are going to do practically when we get to heaven is we are going to eat and drink. We are going to celebrate. We are going to feast. We are invited, you see, to enjoy the largesse, the, the generosity, the magnificence of the king. And friends, that's just a, a good reminder for us this morning, isn't it? That the call of Christianity, the call to become a Christian is fundamentally a call to joy and delight. It's an invitation to experience something rich and wonderful. Uh, now, to be sure, being a Christian is not all roses and sunshine. There are hardships this side of heaven, but most fundamentally... Christianity is an invitation to a relationship of deep joy and great delight. And friends, we've got to remember, physically, one day we will be there in heaven, enjoying this magnificent banquet with the Lord our God, and it will be magnificent. Anyway, the story continues. Uh, verse 3, as is kind of tradition in those days, uh, what would happen is there would be a double invitation to one of these magnificent kingly uh, wedding feasts uh, because it, preparing a big feast like this would take time. You don't just pop down to Woolies and get the ingredients you want and have the guests over that day. No, you tell your servants, go and kill the cattle, gather the ingredients, bring them in, prepare. And so what would happen is they would send out an initial invitation. The king's going to have a banquet. It's going to be next week sometime. And you'd RSVP, oh yeah, I'll be there. And then when the time came, when the food was ready, when the plates were on the table, they would send out a second invitation. Now's the time. Come. And that's what happens in verse 3. Verse 3. This is the first shock of the story. The king sends his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. You see, they'd already RSVP'd earlier and committed to the king, but now they decline. You know those type of people, don't you? I don't imagine anybody in this room is like that. But you click yes on Facebook. Yeah, I'll be there to that event. And then when the day rolls around, you sneakily change your RSVP to no. You don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. But that's kind of what they've done here. 
And you think, what is going on? Why, why would these people do that? Why would you refuse an invitation to a royal wedding? What possible reason could you have to miss such a great celebration as this? I mean, we wouldn't dream of saying no to an invitation like that, would we? And nor should people in the first century have dreamt of saying no to such an invitation because that ancient culture, it was an honor-shame culture. And so if you say no to the invitation of a king, that is a great offense. If you say no to a king's invitation, that king loses face. And so what does this king do when he is deeply insulted by these people's refusal? Well, he's shown to be incredibly patient, isn't he? It's very surprising. He doesn't give up on these people right away. Let's read verse 4. Verse 4. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. It's, it's quite bizarre to hear the king speaking like that, isn't it? It kind of has a bit of a pleading tone to it. Oh, but everything's ready. Look at all the lengths I've gone to. Even Daisy, my favorite cow, I've butchered her for you. Everything's ready. Won't you come? It's strange. Because even today, if you refuse the royal invitation, that's it. No second chances. You missed out. Kings do not ask twice, do they? But this king does. And it's really strange. You can't help but notice this odd detail in the story. And that's deliberate because that's how Jesus tells his stories. Those really out there details, the ludicrous things that happen in Jesus' stories, they're the things that we're supposed to take, take notice of. We're supposed to pay attention to. They're the points Jesus is trying to make. And so what is Jesus trying to show us with the way that this king acts so surprisingly? He's trying to show us that this king, this God, he is an inviting God. He is an inviting God. Verse 3, he invites. Verse 4, he invites again. Later in the the passage, verse 9, he invites a whole different group of people. Right at the end of the passage, verse 14, in that summary verse, it says, many are invited, but few are chosen. The, The point that Jesus is making is that this living God, this king, he is someone who repeatedly says to people, come, 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 come into my banquet. Come into the joy I have prepared for you. I want you to be with me. Come. I have magnificent riches to share with you. That is who this God is. He repeatedly invites, repeatedly seeks out. If I can put it this way, God is not content to sit in heaven alone. There is in God's heart a deep desire to share all of his glory and riches with the people that he has created. So he graciously invites us to come. He's generous. He's persistent. That is what our God is like. And so, friends, I I just want to dwell on this point for a little bit with you this morning. And I want you to do a little experiment with me here. I want you just where you are, just turn your head around and glance around this room. Just, Just look at who is in this room here this morning. Lots of things you could notice this morning. One thing I hope you notice is that there's a lot of empty seats here this morning. As you look around this room, what I want you to do is to think to yourself, who would I like to see sitting in those seats here at church? Can you you think? Is someone coming to mind for you? You might want to close your eyes as you think about it. Who are the people that you work with that you want to see here? Who are the people in your family that you want to see here? Who are the people that you see as you drop your kids off at the school gate every day that you want to see filling these empty seats? 
Friends, doesn't this story show us that God wants these seats to be filled? And in fact, more than just these seats, he wants the seats in the banquet hall of heaven to be filled. God wants that. Do you understand that? So can I, can I challenge you today to take some time perhaps to write down that person's name, that person you've been imagining sitting here with us in God's presence. Write down that person's name and commit to praying for that person. Say, I'm going to pray for this person and I'm going to invite this person to church because I believe that our God is an inviting God and he wants people to enter into a relationship with him. I think that would be a great thing to do in response to this parable. But the story goes on. As we see in the story, not everybody takes God up on this invitation. So firstly, verses 5 through to 10, some guests just outright refuse. Uh, Let's read verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. Here are the, the first people that this king invites, and they're just indifferent to the invitation. They just think, oh, whatever. No, it doesn't sound very good. I'll just go about my own business, get on with my fields, my work, whatever it is. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not condemning work and enterprise and that sort of stuff here. There's nothing wrong with work. The problem is that these people, they're so just absorbed in their projects that they just don't notice the fabulous offer that God has for them. They've got their heads so down in their own worlds that they are oblivious to the unmissable joy that God is extending to them. And that is, that's a timeless mistake, isn't it? You can probably think of people who are making that mistake even today, because it's very easy to let our good occupations become idolatrous preoccupations. It's not hard for that to happen. All of us can drift in that direction from time to time. And when you think about it, what, what that mistake is, it's, it's really no different from carving gods out of wood or metal in the Old Testament. We, we all have that tendency, right, to worship the work of our hands. That's what these guys are doing in verse 5. And they're missing out on the king's offer. Uh, But in verse 6, you see, within this group of people who just don't care for the king's offer, some of them actually express their refusal with hostility towards the king. So let's read verse 6. Jesus says, The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Now, uh, to be fair, those people respond much more violently than the first bunch, but they're actually cut from the same cloth. They're, they're very, very similar to that first group of people who just say, uh, whatever, because there's hostility in all of them. Uh, the underlying motivation, did you see, for all of them is the same. They, just, they don't care about the king's invitation. They're not interested. They don't want to attend, and they certainly don't want the king to rule over them. And so they push this king and his invitation away using whatever force necessary. Now, if you, if you bear in mind, remember what we said earlier, that the initial audience that Jesus was speaking to here were the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They're primarily the people in view, and, and they are the people who, at this very moment, as Jesus tells this story, they are actively and aggressively working to kill Jesus. And so I think verse 6, the, these people who kill the messengers, it's supposed to refer to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, in which case... Verse 5, all those people who are just indifferent and don't want to attend, it's probably a reference to Israel as a whole. They didn't want to come to Jesus' party, so to speak. But both groups, they're doing the same thing. They're rejecting the living God. And Jesus is critical of both of them. 
In verse 7, you see the response of the king. Verse 7, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now that picture, probably know, is ultimately fulfilled. It's more of a prophecy here. In AD 70, when Roman soldiers came into Jerusalem and burned and destroyed the city. Now, if we take stock, it's, it's not really all that surprising that Jesus uh, speaks like this. Because if you've ever read any of his parables, if you've ever read it, really any of the Gospels where Jesus addresses the religious leaders of the day, you'll know that he repeatedly emphasizes time and time again that regime change is coming. Uh, no longer were God's people just going to be the nation of Israel governed by this kind of self-righteous religious elite. No, that time has come and gone. There is a new time now in which God's people will be the church. And Jesus has been saying that over and over and over again, warning them that regime change is about to take place. And so what Jesus is attacking here is the presumption of the Pharisees. That's their fatal flaw. They presumed they were safe. They presumed they were God's people and that the king was on their side, even though by their actions they'd rejected him and they didn't want to have anything to do with him. And so do you hear Jesus warning us here today, saying, if you will not come and honour the king's son, then there is no place for you in his kingdom. The, The invitation of the king is not something to be ignored or scorned. Because either you are God's guest or you are his enemy. Either you're his guest or you're his enemy. But the story continues here, doesn't it? And again, we see the ridiculous generosity of God. Let's read uh, verses 9 and 10. So the king tells his servants, Go to the street corners and invite anyone to the banquet, anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Do you see the generosity of the king here? None of these people have earned an invitation, have they? He just goes out and and freely offers this incredible gift far and wide on the street corners to anybody who will receive it. And that is really how you enter the kingdom of heaven, isn't it? You just receive a free offer that God extends to you. Will you trust in Jesus? Will you trust that he has died for your sins? That's the only way that anybody enters the kingdom of heaven, by receiving a free gift. And and realize here that God is not obliged to invite these people to his wedding banquet, is he? You know, uh, even with the royal wedding coming up, if you were the Queen of England throwing a, a wedding for your prince grandson, there still would be people that you would be obligated to invite to your wedding, right? Heads of Commonwealth countries and things like that. Uh, There is actually quite a bit of speculation at the moment with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding coming up about whether they are going to invite President Donald Trump to their wedding. You know, it's a hot question. Are they obligated to have him there? Do they want him there? That kind of thing. And that's just kind of how it is when you put together a wedding guest list. Anybody who's been married recently will, will know the angst here. There are just some people that you have to invite, whether you want to or not. And To be frank, whether you even know them or not, I distinctly remember at our wedding uh, reading through the guest list and asking Catherine, well, who, who, this is Angela and Paul. I don't know anyone called Angela and Paul. Who are these people? Oh, yes, they're they're friends of my parents. And have I met them? Like, do I, no, I haven't met them, but they have to come anyway. And that's pretty typical for putting on a, a wedding guest list, isn't it? There are people that you have to invite. 
But friends, God is not obligated to invite anyone to this wedding banquet. I mean, who would you put on that list of people that God has to invite? Is God obligated to invite a pope? No. Is he obligated to invite a bishop? No. What about some super virtuous person? Must God invite them? No. God is not obligated to invite anyone. It's a free invitation. You don't earn it. You don't qualify for it. You get given it completely freely. And God says, you just have to trust in my son. That's it. You see that amazing word there, that small word in verse 10? He gathered all the people he could find. All the people. All sorts of people. Uh, All are invited. Young and old, rich and poor, smart and simple, Bad and good, all people are invited. Which means, please understand this, that there is not a person in this room here today and there's not a person walking the planet here today who can say that they have not been invited to this wedding banquet. Because what is happening in this banquet, these messengers going out and saying, come to the king's banquet, this is happening every day in every place of the world. And so if you've never heard this invitation before, then please hear it here today. Very clearly, the living God is saying to you, come. He's inviting you to this banquet. And understand that this amazing invitation is yours for free. And it's not limited by numbers, you know, like Westminster Abbey holding a maximum of 1900 people. No, the kingdom of God is not like that. It can fit a few more people in Westminster Abbey. All can come. No matter your background, no matter your baggage, all can come to this wedding feast. So what have we seen? Well, God graciously invites us to his great feast. Some people reject the invitation, but it goes out to others. And the wedding hall fills with guests, it says at the end of verse 10. And that's, that's such a lovely place to end the story, isn't it? It would make a lot of sense if Jesus kind of ended the story there. There's a happy ending. You could imagine the, the scene. You know, the director hits cut. And everybody cheers, fades out to black, credits roll, end of story. That's not actually how the story finishes, though, unfortunately. Jesus goes on, uh, and Jesus says that there's one more thing we need to hear. There's actually one more surprise in this story uh, that I think we especially need to hear. Because in verse 11 to 14, what he's going to show us is that some guests ignore the dress code. So let's have a read, verse 11 and 12. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. You see, in those days, uh, when you attended a wedding, uh, you didn't have to wear like a suit and tie like we sort of do these days, which is a good thing because that would have been oppressively hot back then in that part of the world. Uh, But there was a dress code to ancient weddings. What you had to do was you had to wear white, white garments. And so that's why, just incidentally, when you're reading through the book of Revelation and it's describing all the robes that Christians are going to wear in heaven and they're all white robes, uh, this is the image here. It's because that's what you wear to a wedding, right? You put on something clean. You put on something white and white is hard to be clean. And so if you show up to a wedding with clean white clothes, it shows you've made a bit of effort. That's the point of it all. And this man who is at the king's wedding banquet, he would have known that. He would have known that he was expected to show up in white garments. And especially when this is the king's wedding. At the king's wedding, you show up with the whitest clothes you possibly can. You put some extra nappy sand in the wash that morning to make it as white as can be. But this man doesn't. 
And it's not just that he's made an accidental you know, fashion faux pas. It's not just that he showed up with white socks and a black suit. That's not what's going on here. He's wearing completely the wrong outfit. And culturally, that's deeply offensive. That's kind of hard for us to find an equivalent today of what it would mean to do something like this at a wedding feast. But the closest equivalent I could imagine was thinking about being invited to lunch with the prime minister. Personally invited. I want you to come and have lunch with me, he says. And so you show up to Parliament House, knock on the door, the Prime Minister opens the door, and there's you standing there in your Speedos. You know, that would be wrong, right? Wrong on so many levels, actually. Uh, And you see, that's kind of what's going on here, because doing that would say something about your attitude towards the Prime Minister, wouldn't it? And so with this man, his outward garments, they reveal something about his inward contempt for the host. This is a fabulous offer. You don't turn up just wearing any scruffy old clothes that you want, as if the host is a nobody and as if the event is unimportant. And so when the king asks this man to explain himself, it's it's amazing, he's speechless. He can't offer a single word in his defense about why he's done this. This is a guy who has said, I'm in. I'm going to the wedding feast of this king and now I can do what I want. I can live how I want. I can wear whatever the clothes I want because I'm in. And when he meets his maker, he finds out how disastrously wrong he was. He discovers that you cannot enter God's kingdom on your own terms. You just can't. You enter on God's terms or not at all. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot. And throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Jesus warns us here that there are going to be people who initially say yes to him. Who say, yes, I want to go to that banquet. I accept your invitation. There's going to be people who say that, but in their hearts, they have contempt for God. There's going to be many, many people who profess faith in Jesus and yet who still think that they can live as they want. And Jesus here says, no, that's, that's not how it works. You cannot have both. Uh, you know, the whole point of this section, the whole, the whole metaphor of these white clothes, that sort of thing, what it's talking about is appropriate behavior. It's saying that the dress code for a Christian who comes to God's banquet, there is a dress code and it is righteousness and holiness. And if you want to enter God's banquet, you better make sure that you are wearing the right clothes. Once you have genuinely placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and once you've accepted his invitation, the grace of God changes you. It cannot help but change you. Now, I really want to be clear here. You you, you only enter God's kingdom by faith in him. That is absolutely true. But it is also absolutely true that if you have faith in him, you will be changed. You will be transformed by the grace of God. There is no person on the pages of scripture who ever truly and genuinely puts their faith in Jesus and who remains unchanged. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. And so do understand, friends, that the pattern of the Christian life might be come as you are, but it's certainly not stay as you are. There is a dress code for God's banquet. And so we've got to hear this as the loving warning that it is. 
And this is a really relevant warning for us here today. Us who are Christians and who say, I'm an insider, I'm part of God's kingdom, I know that I'm going to the banquet. A word like this is spoken directly to us. Because the truth is, yes, there will be people who just outright refuse God's invitation, and that'll be really obvious. They'll say, no, I don't want to have anything to do with you. But there are going to be others who say, yes, yes, I'll come, but then their behavior will say otherwise. You know, there are plenty of people, plenty of people in churches who say that they are Christians, but who never really repent and trust in Jesus. Their faith is just superficial, just for show. There's nothing in their heart. They may call themselves Christians, they may have been baptised, they may come to church every single week, but they're wearing the wrong clothes because they have no intention of ever submitting themselves to the rule of God over their lives. You can be an insider, but still not be inside the kingdom of God. That's the warning here. And friends, you notice that when the king notices this man, this man who has no defence, the king will notice each one of us who is incorrectly attired at his banquet. There will be nothing we can say, not a single word. Now, lest we sort of finish uh, this parable here this morning on a really like somber and depressing note, uh, do notice as well, read between the lines here and realize that there is a third group of people that Jesus doesn't really actually spend that much time talking about. There are genuine guests at this wedding banquet as well, aren't there? There are plenty of people who accept the king's gracious invitation and who dress accordingly, presumably because they don't want to miss out on this magnificent occasion. And so the, the question that this parable is asking us, the question that every single one of us has to wrestle with this morning is, will you be at the wedding banquet of Jesus Christ in eternity? Will you be at that wedding banquet? Do you know the answer to that question here this morning? You know, this is the main reason, without a doubt, this is the main reason why Jesus tells this parable, because he wants us to ask that question of ourselves. Who are we in this story, Jesus says? Are you those people who just refuse God's invitation and have no interest in it whatsoever? Are you the people who put your hand up and say, yes, I'll come, but actually, you know they're going to wear the right clothes? Or are you that third group of people who say, yes, I want to be at the wedding banquet and I will dress appropriately. I will let God clothe me in righteousness and holiness. That's the question we have to ask. Will you be at the wedding banquet of Jesus Christ in eternity? And I I honestly think that if each one of us here today is going to have integrity as we hear God speaking this to us, and as we respond to this claim over our lives, if we're going to have integrity, we actually... Every single one of us have to wrestle with that question very honestly. We have to assess our own spiritual condition. We have to do what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13. We have to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. How do we do that? Well, of course, we look at our beliefs. We ask ourselves, am I believing the right things? Do I, do I trust that Jesus Christ is my savior, that his death on the cross paid for my sins, that there is nothing else I can do to contribute to my standing before God? Do I believe that? Yes, you have to, you have to ask that question of yourself. You have to assess your belief, but you have to assess your behavior as well. You have to figure out whether the life that you are living confirms or contradicts what you claim to believe. That's how you do this kind of self-assessment. And let me start to suggest to you that at the start of a new year, that's actually a really excellent time to be asking yourself some of these kind of questions. 
Some of you will have been Christians for decades, and you'll think you know the answer to this question automatically. Some of you new Christians, can I say it doesn't matter where you are in your spiritual life, Christians have to do this. The New Testament is clear. We have to examine ourselves in the light of warnings like this and find out where we are with God. And so wherever you are, can I urge you to do this? I, I, I firmly believe that this is important. And so what I've actually done when home groups uh, start back up in a couple of weeks' time, we have built into the first couple of weeks of your home groups that every single person will do one of these kind of spiritual health assessments. We think it is important for you to know where you are in your faith and to have that information available to yourself and yourself alone. We don't need to know it. We think it's important. And so we're going to get you to do it in a couple of weeks. We want you to have a picture of whether you're growing as a Christian, whether you are being transformed to be more and more like Christ, whether you are taking off your old self, putting on your new holiness and righteousness. Is that what you're wearing? Because, friends, this is a real warning. Jesus has said, actually just before our passage, in the few verses before, Jesus has, has warned the Jewish leaders that the kingdom of God is being taken away from them. And it's being given to people who will bear fruit. I don't think you can hear that and not ask yourself the question, well, am I bearing fruit? Is the kingdom of God being given to me? I don't know the answer to that question. Only you can know the answer to that question for yourself. Uh, but I do encourage you to search and find the answer. Well, as we close, Jesus finishes this parable here with a very pithy uh, little statement there in verse 14. Uh, it's a bit confusing. He says, many are invited. Literally, the word is called. Many are called, but few are chosen. And what this is, is a reminder for us, I think, uh, and not just for the religious leaders listening that day, but for those of us who have come in from the street corners, as it were, uh, that many of the people who've been invited will not make it through to the wedding banquet, ultimately. Some will refuse to come. Others will turn up, but their clothing is going to reveal that they're not the real deal. But Jesus says none of that's going to happen by accident. None of that's going to take God by surprise. God is aware of all of this because he knows and he chooses. God's in control. So friends, let me urge you this morning not to refuse God's invitation. Let me urge you not to ignore the dress code. Instead, accept God's invitation. Put on the wedding clothes that he calls you to and go out to the street corners and invite anyone and everyone you can to come with you to this wedding banquet.